This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl And it's on mic and it's not on one, two. So it's recording and I'm testing. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Levels are good. Levels are good. So, we're looking out on the Narrows and we're going to Judy to interview her. In fact, we're not going to Judy because the first time we did this, we didn't record it. So we're faking it. In fact, we're walking back from Judy's house (laughs) in a totally different context for lunch a few days later. But we're, you know, we're going to Judy and um, we're almost ready to pass the Narrows. And what about the tide today, Sophie? It's out, right? It's going out. Yeah, we're lucky. We can dry cross. So, Judy, here we come. So we're here in uh, Judy's kitchen on Air Aid, and the walk towards here was already magnificent and adventurous. So that adds to the, um, how do you say that? The uh, ambiance, <laughs> expectations. No, that adds to the expectations, okay. like wow. Yeah. And uh, Nick is here, Judy's son. Over from the States as well. <laughs> There are two other sons that we might talk about. Uh, One of them yes. is, is is relocating to and it's coming on Wednesday. Yes, but right now we're on air aid. You're you you're living in this house. Mm-hmm. Um, your mother lived here alone mm-hmm. for the last twenty years of her life. How mm-hmm. did she manage? Let's start this talk about how how to survive in such a lonely place or surviving might might sound a bit negative but how and to live in such a remote place and is it lonely or remote was did she feel it like <laughs> okay so um i mean my mom came um i i guess right about when she was 60 years old and we had been coming here for holidays for for years before then so she knew the place but only at specific times of the year when we came up as a family so it wasn't that she wasn't familiar with the existent what it would be might be like but anyway she decided she wanted to come up and live here the cottage then was nothing like it looks now this this whole big eating kitchen wasn't built it was a tiny tiny little kitchen that tacked onto the um the, the living room and in lots of ways the croft hadn't been improved to the extent it is now so i marvel at how what how she coped because it was a much a much tougher physical existence for her than it is for me. The garden also hadn't really been started. My, my brother had spent a year here and he'd broken the ground, but my mother basically 
got the garden as a vegetable garden up and running. And that's what one thing she did quite a lot of. Um, and uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't, I was living in the States when she was here. So we communicated by letter because we didn't have internet in those days and phone conversations were really expensive. So we used to do write letters. So there was long lag time between, you know, her writing me a letter, me reading it and then writing her a letter back, you know, would be a matter of weeks. So it, it's, that was interesting in itself. I've kept her letters, which I find quite interesting to read. She's a very good writer. And usually she would do these anecdotes of these disasters that would happen to her, but she'd make fun of it in the letter, you know, with times when, you know, her whole coal frame was blown off out of the garden or the freezer broke down and she was running all her produce up to the neighbours to put it in their freezer so she could save it from, you know, just things like that or just terrible gales or, you know, so she would she was able to um, see the humour in it or at least relay, relay that us to us. But I imagine for her it was... The actual existence was quite tough. But she was a writer, right? In her professional she, life. Uh, she was um, no more. She used to do, she was used to be a producer, actually. The, she used to BBC. do for the BBC. Mm-hmm. And she used, she did used to write scripts for schools radio. Um, she was an avid reader. I mean, most of the books that are here are ones that her, she built up when she was here. So she just read and read and read. Um but but let me qualify her existence because it wasn't totally solitary because she arrived at about the same time just after the island had been sold and the Fintorn community started up there. And very quickly, there was this really important bond between my mum and the community. So they s- used mum as a kind of escape, you know, when they, they needed to kind of get away from the kind of closeness of the group and have somebody to vent to or just somebody to have a cup oh, of tea really? to or bring the kids down to, you know, to go and visit Christine. because She's like was, an extension. She was, an ex- she was the grandma foundation. on the island for the village. The, the outsider village. of the community. Yeah. And then, you know, they would have her up for meals. They had a tractor so they could help her with heavy physical stuff. You know, they just, mm. it was a really nice relationship that built up. Um so she, yeah, I mean, she she loved being here. So. Because so the community you're you're mentioning, it's about ten minutes walk from here. For oh, five minutes. Five I mean, minutes. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, it's that's just how close we yeah, can yeah. really see the house. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm. So it's very easy for people to come down and visit her, and also for her to go up. And she'd help them out if they needed help doing a job or something, you know, harvesting or. But still, it's quite an interesting setup. The community yeah, over yeah, there, yeah, just yeah. around the corner, yeah, yeah. you're sort of independently yeah, owning yeah. this part of the island, while the rest yeah. is owned by. Yeah, yeah. The Dutch family. Yeah, it's a very, very weird setup. We were very lucky that the owner at the time, when we, it was a couple of owners before the, the Dutch. When he decided to sell the island, we were renting the cottage from him. And we'd been renting it for quite a few years and just using it. You know, we were here every summer and Easter and Christmas. And he could see how we were really sort of fond of the place and doing stuff to it, even though we were just renting it. And so he offered the opportunity for us, for my parents to buy it, which meant that he then sold the island with this little lump that was not part of the deal, you know. So that was quite extraordinary, really. It's a pluriversal thing to do, to allow another world to exist. Yeah. <laughs> and to go back a little bit further, because you, you at some point you ha- had to come here. You, you, you didn't grow up here. No, but, no. So that, that well, that went back to before I was born, my father was was doing a program for the BBC because he'd also worked for the BBC um, on and off. And he was doing a program about 
the Iona community, because at that time, the Iona community was fairly new. And George McLeod, who was the founder of the Iona community, I don't know if you know much about it. But anyway, he it's um, um, a community that started off with the, the, the goal of renovating the abbey because it was in ruins at that time. And he he this was in the 19 late 1940s, 1950s. He made a connection with uh, unemployed skilled workers in Glasgow um, and bringing them out to work on the on the um, abbey, but also it being a kind of retreat for them and the, and the sort of this connection between and then people involved in the community having Iona as a treat but being involved in sort of grassroots work in deprived areas or whatever. So the the Iona community was always this having this big outreach function in the world, but Iona being the place to people to pull together to come and retreat talk about what they wanted to do have have a sort of sort of peaceful time so how how did he cover that for the bbc well i think it was a i think it was a radio program i'm pretty sure it was so he he came out in order to do that program never been here before and um like us like yeah absolutely (laughs) and it was us but then way back this was 1953 something like that and so came to Iona and just thought, wow, this is such a lovely place. I'd like to bring the family. So the following summer, my mum and me as a baby came and they, we stayed in one of the little cottages on the street and then just kept coming back every summer. And then my brothers were born and they came. And then we moved from the little cottages to uh, a farm on Iona that had a barn that they emptied out a bit like Meek and Rooker's barn, but nothing like as beautiful like they literally cleared the hay out and they moved in bunk beds and a table and a gas stove and and us you know we'd be there for a month um and we did that until I was about 10 years old and I think by that point my parents were kind of feeling like well we really want this to be a place to come as holidays but I think we can do one better than a barn you know with three kids you know 10 and under and wet summers you know it was like so they started looking around for somewhere slightly more accommodating that they could stay in nothing available in Iona so they so started looking in around and came to Erid walked over to Erid and met the owner at the time who was using the cottages for himself and friends and family and just using it for summer and he said well yeah you can rent one of the cottages for the summer so that's how we ended up coming down here renting it for five or six years and then when he sold it that was when he offered to sell. And then it forever stayed in the family. And then it's been in the family, yeah, absolutely. So, and will be. Yeah. We have a lot of people that have been on Erid that have got to know my mother or got to know us. The community has changed. They don't want to come back to Erid. They don't know anybody up there, so they come and stay with us. So that becomes more of the extended family. So, you know, it's lovely. And it, and it's, it just, you know, it's got these sort of feelings all over the world now, really. Um, yeah, now you live here permanently, but it hasn't been like that always. No, because you no. have quite a, an adventurous life in the sense of that you've been you've moved to the United States at some point. Can you tell us a little bit about your own professional life? Well, uh, it's kind of, kind of mixed. I mean, I I moved to the states thirty oh, five <laughs> years ago, must be about that, um, because my husband at the time had a who was also English, he had a job with a company in England that was setting up a branch in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And so he he was really keen to move to the States. So we went over to the States at that time. And um, 
you know, 30 years later, I decided it was time to come back. But I mean, that, you know, had a fat, had the kids grew up there, all the kids are now in the But place. you worked in education. Well, right? I, I, I trained to be a teacher while I was there. I was a, I was a mum for the, for, uh, until basically Nick was, you know, kind of old enough to sort of fend for himself a bit more, you know, basically when he started going to school. Um, then I went and got trained to be a teacher. But uh, up until that time, I'd been sort of stay at home mum, really. Um, so for I was teaching for about 12 years until I decided to come back here. Why did you decide to come back? I, I'd always wanted to be able to be here for at least to see the year through. I mean, I'd only, I, I would bring the kids back every summer. I mean, remember my mum was here. I had, we have no relatives in the States at that time. And, and when I moved over, I knew nobody apart from my husband. So I had a real strong need to kind of keep the connection with Britain going. And so, and it was also important to me that the kids would know their cousins and their grandparents and aunts and uncles and stuff like that. So I personally, I needed to come back every year. I mean, I just felt, you know, sort of remote from Britain. I really don't like the Massachusetts summers. They're so hot and humid and this was so much more pleasant to be here. And it's just such a lovely place to be. So, I mean, it was you know, two reasons, really. And, to and come do you back. remember your first year round? Um, I even did a blog because some of the kids were interested. So I even did a blog called Judy's Year Off, you know. <laughs> so I sort of did an entry every year to sort of sh every month, you know, just telling them what I was doing. And then when you arrived at the crucial five, six Well, six December. Months, well, exactly. Write? Well, then I was sort of like having this torturous time. Oh, do I? You know, I really want to stay, but should I stay? You know, and all this. And any anyway, basically decided, you know what? I really want to stay. At which point the kids just said, well, we knew you were going to stay, Mum. <laughs> Why did you have that sort of <laughs> put yourself through all that pain, you know, just... <laughs> and I think the school probably guessed it too, so... Maybe so you didn't allow yourself or something the first six months. Well, it's kind of a big shift, isn't it? I mean, you kind of, you're sort of, you know, you really are sort of leaving everything behind and coming in. You know, of course. It's... And it was, and I... Well, uh, so you've been living here now for 12 years? No, five years. Five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, not very long. Yeah, yeah. Only five. I yeah, it was five years. as of so July. No, all of us think you lived here for long. Like forever. No, but, that, that... but you see, here's because I'd been coming every summer. It didn't feel like I was moving to a to a new place. Yeah, but it's also because you, you're very. Uh... You seem to have your feelers. <laughs> your feelers out. <laughs> your roots out. Your connections. Volunteer um, well, work. yeah, but that's... So I it mean, seems to be important for you to... That's important. So I didn't want to be a hermit here for a start. So tell us a little bit about the, the, the things you do for the community here. Well, it's, things have sort of grown. I mean, it's just, if you decide you, you, don't, you want to do stuff off of Ered, you want to get off Ered, which I think is quite important. Um, and I did want to feel, you know, get involved in the local community in one way or another. So... You know, you just turn up at something, and the next thing you know, they're saying, "Oh, we need somebody to help do this." You know, so. so oh, we oh, saw I you in action <laughs> two, two nights ago. You were sort of catering for this. Well, event. I'm involved in the historical centre, yes, so and it's partly through people I know. So I knew Anne, who I was behind the counter with. She's been involved in the historical centre for a while, and so you know, she was saying, "Oh, we really need some help. Do you want to come and help?" You know just staff the museum, you know, so, oh, yeah, I'll come along for, you know. So the next thing you know, you're on the committee and then, you know, it kind of grows from that. Um, and then other things like we, they closed the local mobile library with all the cutbacks. And so there was a, a group of, a small group of people were saying, let's try and do a community library. And I've 
love books. So it was like, oh, that's so important, you know. So I kind of got involved in that. But that's a very small thing. You know, it doesn't happen very often, but just a little thing. What is it physically, like a a truck? No, we have space in the local... Well, where we went, where we had the meeting, there's a back room. We have have stacks of bookshelves. And so... The books are stored there and then we open, um, well, it was once a week. We've just clo- we've closed for a little while because we're waiting to get new books. We get supplied with books from the local authority. But because of COVID, they're just not sending any new books out. And we've had the same books now for rather a long time. And people have sort of stopped coming because they know what books everybody are. Re- everybody yeah, read Yeah, pretty everything. much that way. So we just said, like, okay, we'll stop for a little bit. We'll start up in October when <coughs> hopefully we'll get some books and go from there um so that was the library then there's a thing um with Chirurgan which is the conservation land that Meek and Rooker has sort of a, affiliated a with we're taking a small break because small of the break, boiling yeah. Yeah. as if we want to run up a hill well there's we can, a lot of awkwardness going on we can just hold on lately to, we hold on to it and well it must we be tricky with it i mean there's different people you're interviewing because people have different everyone has a different abilities you know feel a comfort comfort levels with talking i mean i yeah. i'm interested have you interviewed with jimmy yet no i tried to persuade him I said, well it's just 10 minutes and we're interviewing judy and john and the neighbors of Mika and then he said well okay Yeah. But we say something different to everyone, you know? To yeah, John, yeah, yeah. we said 20 minutes. To you, we know I that said we can say minutes. one hour. I said 10 <laughs> minutes to Jimmy. Rutger <laughs> says, for instance, that he has videotapes where he is singing Christmas carols with your mother. Well, Which that was, funny. yeah. Well, my, my mother, one of the things my mum did, because she had done productions and she'd written scripts, is at the time... When the group on Erid was that strong group that I was talking about that she was really close with, they were raising funds in Benesson to build a new village hall. And they had one of the fundraisers they did was they did a Christmas show every year and invited different individuals and groups to do something at the show. So mum got Erid together and every year she'd write a script and they'd put on this kind of pantomime type play with her producing and directing it. So it probably was something that stemmed out of that. So she was doing that at Christmas. Um, and I wish I never saw one. And I've heard oh, he that has somebody the has the tape yeah, of it. He, and Jimmy has the tape. It must be Jimmy. That Yeah, so I'd love to. I will ask him. About yeah. Him. Let me do, do actually one thing. Judy, it's better if I do. Yeah. Because so just before the tea break, <laughs> tea and sympathy break, Uh, we were talking about your involvement in the community mm-hmm. and the different things you do. So the mm-hmm. historical center, the mm-hmm. mobile library. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, yeah, sta- stationary library now. But stationary yeah, community library. library community library. It, yeah. What about things like the community council? I I'm not on I'm not on on that. No, no. I'm. I mean, I'd much I, I'd much rather be involved in things where I can actually be doing stuff. Which is why I mean, the trouble is you you kind of get roped into committees because you know. The, Then there needs to be some sort of structure usually behind these things. Some governance structure. Some governance structure. But I'd much rather be doing the active bit, whether it's... But you said yeah. you were involved with the Turenigan. 
Probably. Yes. So that's something that's um, so the conservation land um, behind Mikunruka, which is owned by the Dutch, but it's managed by a charitable group. Um, the group has just kind of reformed. We're now called the Cherrigan Trust, and it's in it's got a new li- new group of trustees, um, and and they wanted local people to be involved. And um, so, and I'm it's a place I love to be on, and I'm really interested in the things that Meek and Rooker are doing artistically with the site. So it made sense to be part of that. So I'm on that trust. And what um, do you do concretely? So basically things like um, we've been trying to clear along the fence line because the fence is broken down and the deer are getting in, but the fence is completely overgrown with shrubs. So we spent se- different sessions through the winter with getting so really working. people. That's really working, yes. Then doing surveys of, of um, birds and butterflies and bees um, and you send that through to some ecological well, diversity? Well, we're building a, a data set on our, on our own website. I mean, that's the other thing. Some We're getting a website together. I'm not doing that. But it's, you know, being part of the trustees is some of these decisions are starting to get made. So we'll get a website so we can have a place to put the data. But some, some of that data, um, for instance, I was just entering the data about bumblebees. So there's a national bumblebee conservation group that is really keen to get information about where bumblebees are so you can log in your information to them so that's getting used by another body the bird data um one of the people on the board is a professional ornithologist so you know he's very interested in that data but we also have uh longitudinal studies that have been done on chererigan 25 years or more on bird populations so it's really interesting to do them now and compare and keep that going see the evolution yeah yeah so, so that's like a, that's a research a very... group combined with yeah, yeah, with, yeah. A, with yeah. a working group that yeah. really goes into the field and does things that yeah. need to happen so that's that's one aspect then the other aspect of the trust which we haven't really started on now but is the kind of how do you involve people the educational side like you it's open to the public you know how do you help people really appreciate what's there without destroying it, you know, and, 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 and sort of educational outreach. You know, there's just there's a lot of possibilities which we haven't really tapped on because this is a very new group. But that's another area that would be really interesting to build on. And we need to get money, you know, in that inevitably these things. You can't do much without money. So, this, you know, we've got to look into grants and how to fund it all. Do you, you know? feel that maybe that's, that's, that's an assumption? But do you think that uh, processes like this are... Sp- are more slowly here on Mull than you are used to, for instance, in Massachusetts, Massachusetts, or? Well, I haven't. I wasn't sort of involved in groups quite the same way as that there. Um, or just how? I do you, don't know. How do you feel I think the st- the struggle here is that you have a fairly small population, so your pool of volunteers and people to be on committees is small so you have the same faces popping up you know hence why i'm on more than one thing because these things couldn't survive <laughs> right judy well it's not i'm not the only person no. that's on multiple everyone's things. on the multiple yeah yeah, yeah 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 or sort of takes yeah so or is volunteering on multiple things or is you know supporting it in one way or another so that is a so that's quite precarious that's because if yeah. someone it's falls vulnerable. ill or yeah, and it's vulnerable for the just the longevity of a group because you, I mean, and the historical centre is a bit like that because we really need some new energy coming in, you know, just to be able to staff it. We've really felt that in COVID because quite a lot of the trustees, for for, for medical reasons, cannot be in the museum with COVID precautions in place. So, 
that limits the number of volunteers we have to even staff the museum, you know, so let alone take on projects. So, you know, it's, 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 it's something you always need to think yeah, about. Yeah, how many you know? resources do you have? Yeah. And yeah. Is, is that something, because, so we've mentioned um, your father before, working for the BBC, but he was also trained as a sociologist, right? And he I, I don't think he was ever trained. I mean, he, he, he built up his, he, I mean, through the various things he's done in his life, he'd built up a philosophy his, of, of the importance of people being involved in their communities and community development starting at the grassroots level and not being, you know, architects and surveyors and councillors saying, you need this, you need that, and plonking it in place. So he was always uh, very much under the belief that it was, you needed to empower people to give them the tools in order to make change. So um, in his later years, so I suppose probably the last 20, 30 years of his life, that's what he was really involved in. And so he developed an organization that, that produced uh, kits, really, um, that could be used in a community to enable people to have a sort of democratic part in decision making. So it was a way of getting people around a table like this. So supposing you were wanting to renovate a village hall, You, you invite everybody in the community to come. And rather it being a meeting where everyone sat in chairs and there's someone up top saying, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, you end up, you have this kit, which is like a sort of a paper model of the village hall with all the possibilities. And you just have people around it and they're moving things around with their hands. You don't even have to say anything, you know. So it's a way of getting people's ideas without worrying whether they are able to communicate well or whatever, or what their past history is, they, you know, somebody might have a really good reason that there needs to be, you know, whatever, a, a, a playground in this place, or an access door there, or, a, a, you know, whatever it is, you know, so by putting it in a way that, that has the actual um, event or structure in the middle, and everybody's grouped around it, and is, contributing and thinking about it and there's sort of talking going on but you're not really establishing eye contact with people it's like oh yeah that's a good idea. oh no but maybe we could do that or how about this and you know that sort of thing and then out of so that would be a kind of a initial thing but out of that there were lots of other developments like okay so you have this idea what you you've come to a consensus about what you want to do then how do you do go about making it happen so they had a whole lot of mechanisms that they put out about how to prioritize jobs you know so things that could be done that need to be done soon things that could be done later things that you know could be put off for a long time ago you know things just to help people imagine imagine and then and then structures to so, so who can we ask who what are the resources that we have at our disposal that we need to know about you know so kind of developing a kind of so he was know, very so, hands-on so it was hands-on yeah do you have that kit Uh, bits a... of it. <laughs> I mean, he did a different kit. He, he went all over the world. So he did, they adapted kits for different situations. So in Africa or he was, I know he worked in Germany and I just wondered if he was in the Netherlands. He was out in Jamaica, um, the US. Because nowadays you hear about sociocracy models or... Well, his he was called Planning for Real. Planning um, for Real. And it's been incorporated in architectural schools and has been for years now. And I've met people who said, oh, yeah, that's part of our syllabus, you know. So it's like... So he did 
wrote books about yes. it, or he yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's written books. Yes. Claim it, or he did. Uh, well, advocating that approach to to how to, for communities sort of making progress. What was his position? I think that's interesting. So he wasn't linked to a university. He was well. He um, also, it was more. I mean, he had he been to a, I mean, yes, he'd been to a university. He went to Cambridge and did. I can't remember what he did there. Probably politics and history or something. Maybe history. Can't remember. <laughs> and then he he he's written tons of stuff on all sorts of stuff. I mean, as an independent writer. as an independent writer. I mean, he's he was a conscientious objector in the war, and he was involved in the Friends Ambulance Brigade. So he was involved in the Blitz, putting out fires, and you know helping people there. And then he went out to China because the Friends Ambulance Brigade, which was a Quakers Quaker sort of ambulance team he went out with them and was involved in the revolution in China and I mean he's been and he's been in Africa for quite a lot so he's been all over the world doing stuff before and out of all of those experiences I think he kind of developed this sort of philosophy of mm. of the importance of you know community members deciding their future and having a, a really active role in making things happen. You're, you're coming from strong parents. Like yeah. Very strong uh, I mean, individuals. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying disengaging yourself from your parents. You can't do it, really. <laughs> yeah, because that would be my next question. Like, do you feel then the air of of that philosophy? And, and well, or yeah, I do mean, you bring I, that into your own Well, yes. I mean, obviously, I'm, I've been, I've had it, I've been grown up in that, in that cloud of it, if you like. You know, it's part of, I mean, I, you can't, I can't not pay pay attention to it um and so yes i mean i think it's definitely meant that i've had a it just seems an obvious thing that you get involved in community things whether it's i mean when i was at university we got involved in making a an alternative bookshop as a as a kind of cooperative you know and that so that was my first kind of concrete involvement in doing something in a collaborative way it's like an obvious route for me to do i just It just makes sense. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's because of my parents. You know, you know. Mm, one of the, the things we are interested in in these talks is also to kind of, so when we wonder about this question, how to thrive on mill, it's also, there is the community level. Yeah. And then there are these like other forces, such oh, as yes. tourism, yes. <laughs> such as money flows, subsidies. You know, there are all these, I don't know, we have this image of the island and then these big yeah. things flowing by. So how do you feel that tourism impacts community work here or is that something that can help empower the community or are there also threats How do you well i think both i mean it's essential for people's livelihoods as so many people have depend on it depend on in one way or another it may be just an, an additional job they get to do in the summer it may be their whole job is geared towards the tourism um so it's huge um And it's people have hurt really badly during COVID because it obviously ground to halt last summer. So a lot of people found their income just dropped. And a lot of it is not, they couldn't do the, um, what's the word, Fur be furloughed because they're self-employed. They're just doing cobbling together different jobs, you know, might be doing changeovers in a self-catering cottage uh, uh, one or two days a week and then helping out in the store being the shopkeeper or helping on one of the boats or you know doing something in to do with advertising tourism or producing a craft that you sell to tourists um, but most of those things they wouldn't be fully employed so they don't didn't have access to furlough so a lot of people really were hurting and there was quite a big support system that developed in covid 
from the community. From the community. So there's another example. Yeah, absolutely. What, what kind of support oh, was well, that? Sort like of food. soup kitchen? Yeah, and... yep. Yep. In fact, um, Linda, I don't know if John mentioned it, she's done a Sunday lunch the whole time, making meals on Sundays that people can, were initially would take out. Now people can come into the hall and have it. And there were other people doing similar things, doing takeouts. And then there were food collections, um, you know, money collections. I mean, just but people looking out, everybody knew who needed help. And there was, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was good in that sense. But it doesn't doesn't solve the problem long term for people. I mean, their, their incomes were were really, really hit hard. Um, so the economics are vulnerable uh, here. Yeah, yeah. I so mean, in a good year, it's farmers, great, but also right? For tourism. Yeah. Well, farmers, of course, farmers. I guess I'd, I'd be interesting to hear how Jimmy and John talk about it. Um, you know, there's mixed blessings with tourists. I mean, obviously, Jimmy has the campsite, which has potentially earned him a lot of money, and John can tack onto that a little bit. But then you've got the the issues that tourists, you know, with their dogs not understanding the damage they can do with sheep and, you know, sort of just being oblivious to things, you know, so there's that going on. But um, And then cr- the roads get crowded, so it's hard to get to do your job because you've got a line of tourist cars driving slowly and not understanding the, the rules of the road. And, you know, so f- people can get frustrated So pre-COVID, that. because COVID changed everything, but yeah. pre-COVID, did you feel that it was go- going... Overboard with all the people coming to Mal. I think people were, st- were were getting worried about that because we don't have the infrastructure to support the numbers of cars. Numbers. Yeah. And I think, and it still gets a discussion: is how do you regulate uh, the number of cars and camper vans that come over? And the, I, I honestly think there has to be a different price structuring for the ferries. It was a huge mistake. They they reduced the price of the ferries across the board for tourists and residents. In, in line with uh, EEC reg- regulation, but they kept it high for commercial traffic. And what that meant is that, okay, local people can travel cheaply to Oban, but also tourists can bring cars over. It's 30 pounds to bring a car. I mean, you do it for the day. You do a day trip. If you've got a family, it's cheaper than to get the ferry and pay a bus ride and be limited where you can go. You're going to bring your car. But the commercial traffic still pays really high rates. So that means the local people are paying extra to purchase anything on the island. So delivery charges are really high. Often when you order stuff from the mainland, you get, uh, you know, the mainland delivery charge. And then you get added on 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds because it's coming to the islands. And well, so pr- that hits the locals. It's interesting what you bring up. So the prices for the ferry could be a very good tool. Yes, also for income-wise, yes. for the island. So why don't you just up the tourists and keep the, the residents yes. low and reduce the commercial? Yes, yeah. it seems to be blatantly obvious, and people keep saying that, but it's it's you know it's at higher levels where that decision has to be made, but and can I don't you understand. Go a little bit into that. Why um, isn't that happening then? If well, there was the, the legislation. Um, I can't remember the the name of it, but it was the thinking behind it was that islanders anywhere in Europe shouldn't be penalized because they have to pay to get to their island to, to, with transport. So the idea was to make it as inexpensive to travel by car from the mainland to an island as it would be to travel from one city to another city on the mainland. So it's trying to level out transport costs. So that's why they they had to, they brought the ferry fares right down. They didn't down, make categories of cars. But they didn't make categories of cars, except the commercial traffic. So it's, 
it does, it's one of those things that seems blatantly in need of change, but I don't, I don't understand the economics and politics of it enough to know why I haven't done it yet. <laughs> but yes. Well, Rutger can... told this story that sometimes people, well, a lot of times it happens that people get an upgrade on their camper that they rent, and it's a big one, mm -hmm. and they don't know how to drive it. They don't know how to, they don't how to drive it, how to reverse. So when they need to back up, then the bus driver needs to get out of the bus, take over the wheel, park the van and go back into his bus, which of course is a crazy situation. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, I, so many times I've driven where, where a camper van has literally just come past a passing pace and I've got one that's, you know, so many meters way behind me and they just stop and they're waiting and waiting. You know? oh. And it depends how, you know, how firm you can be that you stop too and wait and wait and wait or whether you just say, oh, come on, and you reverse and glower at them as you drive past, like you should have been doing that, you know, yeah. but anyway. The, the Sustainable Southwest Mill Development Group, the yeah. Swede, they, yeah, yeah. they did a report on, on tourism, a survey. Did you take part in that survey? Probably, yes. I try, try and take part in any surveys they do. I can't remember which one that was. It's probably, recent. It's from last yeah, yeah. spring. Yeah, yeah. And it, they wanted to get a view of the, the community yeah. on tourism, how the community perceives tourism and what are the, mm -hmm. what are the, the frictions and where are yes, possibilities for now. For the future and things like uh, this came up, the, the yeah, price yeah. thing came up, but also litter, yep. lack of infrastructure, things yeah. like that came up as threats. And then as potential horizons for the future, they uh, were mentioning slow tourism or mm -hmm. extensive tourism mm -hmm. or eco-tourism, mm -hmm. which are all um, yeah scenarios which are also being tested at the moment and mm. tried out in other. Because that's, I think, the beautiful thing about an island is it's, quite clearly demarcated oh, mill is mill you know you can't it's not like the the, the fringes are clear the board so yeah. you, you could make not just zero again but you could make mill into a location for a certain type of visit with a yeah. certain ethics nearly or certain now i'm being very idealistic but because the difficulty with eco like sort of luxury mm -hmm. eco tourism it's a niche, is yeah. it's a niche and then you get all these rich people which is already yeah, yeah, at yeah. hand that people yeah have houses that are yeah, yeah. empty most yeah, yeah. of the year, yeah. while r m people from Mull live in these caravans. caravans yeah, yeah. No, it's a painful. Really, it's, a, it's, it's really bad that, yeah, I agree. Mm. I agree. So it's it's complex. It is. And it's one, it, it's one of those things that, again, people recognize things that could be done, but it's how you get from that point to actually doing it. But we have, a you know, Schmid and the Mull Community Trust are very dynamic groups that have quite you know are, are have achieved quite a lot of things in different areas over the time over the years and so are, are good voices to at least put out those things but it still comes down to money in the you know mm -hmm. getting the sort of funding. Oh, we need your father's kit yeah we do yeah. <laughs> to get everybody going well it has been used actually because when they did when they renovated the schoolhouse to Craig Hall where we met the other night he his kit was Involved in that, to so put that was, ideas in there. Yeah, yeah, to get everybody's ideas. I want books in the back, and I want. Well, this was. I mean, before I wasn't involved. This was years and years ago. I, I can't remember when it was done. It must have been. Well, to like end the talk, Judy, let's go, let's go back to the here and now, to the house, because mm -hmm. we've heard and you can also see it that we're so close to the sea, mm. and we've heard that you're busy thinking about how to save this house for future generations. Do you need to move it up or, or lift it up? So what's the plan or what's the situation Well, it's interesting, with that? isn't it? It's very hard to know. I mean, yes, if you looked at, at 
global global predictions. I mean, I'm sure in a hundred years' time probably would be an issue. Yeah, but in the short term, um, it's actually silting up in front of the house, so the the, the there's more sand and vegetation okay. growing out front. When my mum was here in storms, the water would come in the front door, and that hasn't happened while I've been here by any means. So I think what's happening is there's been a local shift of sand in the estuary that's actually making that we've got more of a beachfront here. Mill wants to keep you here. It worries me then, you know, mm -hmm. so you think, okay, we need to do something better. No. Well, this yeah. visit was was also <laughs> hel was was also um, happening because of Mika and Rutger because they are your neighbors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. you can call them friends. I don't oh, know. Oh yes, yeah. Um, friends. Yeah. Um, and they arrived five years ago. Um, how did you know you've been watching them? I think you arrived almost. We at arrived the same almost time. the same day. Yeah. It was very, which was lovely. Same day. Almost within a, within a few days. It was the beginning of July. And it was just Meek because Rooker was still working in the in the retail. In, 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 yes, mm -hmm. so he would come at vacations. But basically, it was Meek for a year, and so that was lovely because I think for both of us, because we were both kind of new here, and you know, so we kind of saw a lot of each other. And funny things that she said other. that when she we asked her because they were here for one year as sort of a test year. Yeah. And then we asked, uh, did you really see that as a test year or did you immediately know we want to stay mm -hmm. here? And then she said that at a specific moment that she was walking to Erid over mm -hmm. the Narrows, mm -hmm. that she thought, this, mm. I want to be here. Mm. Maybe she was walking to you. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Thank you, Judy, for this <laughs> know, it's fine. wonderful talk. Oh, it's, no, it's interesting. <laughs> it was lovely. Maybe we could borrow a book from your father. Oh yeah, I don't week, know if I've got. Any the, yeah, I can. Um, I can try and find some of the anyone bits of the packs and bits uh, of the packs. Yes, yeah, they're the they're packs. tucked away in the lock. I might have to spend a while to find those. But let me see what I've got. Oh. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Traveling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Instituut in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Travelling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, sociopolitical and spatial issues. We we heard you you drink from a something well, called the a stream, burn. Well, the stream the stream that comes down by the cottage it's has always a burn, been the right? it's it's burn, yeah, a burn. Yeah, it's always been the source of water for this cottage. I mean, when the McGilvries were here, they got water from the stream. So, I think that's why the cottage was here. And I've never known it to completely dry up. There's always water running down here, whereas other streams on the island, like there's ones in the corner of the over there, they dry up. So, but so that's a good choice. That's surface water. It's right? surface water, yes. But we don't have another, uh, any other options. Tastes good, I have to say, in the coffee. So what? Well, <laughs> do you what, filter it or do? Well, you... yeah. So what we we've got a very um, elaborate system of settling tanks. So what we've what we did was further up the stream because we didn't want to be dependent on electricity to get water into the ha house. So we found a point where. The height is high enough to just use gravity feed to get the water up into the loft. So then we have pressure coming down in the taps in the house. And we've put in a number of tanks where the water comes from the stream, goes in, goes through crude filters, set, sediment settles out, 
then the water goes into the next tank, same thing happens. And then it goes into a big holding tank that holds, what is it, 20,000 litres? 2,500 litres, sorry, 2,500 litres. That's sort of up where those top trees are Mm. in the garden. And that's just enough head to have gravity feed into the house. So you don't need a pump? We don't need a pump at the moment, in theory. And in the loft, we have a UV light. So that, in theory, kind of makes it sort of safe. But quite honestly, my mum, I mean, we've only put the UV lamp in the last few years. and The UV lamp is for killing? Killing, killing bacteria. bacteria. Yeah. But so the interesting thing that's been happening in the last few years is that we've been having stretches of dry weather here that have been longer than normal. And the stream where we source our water from has dried up. But there's still water that filters down through the ground and there must be a sort of gravel bed. Well, there is a gravel bed, uh, sort of like a meter below, where water kind of oozes down and comes down, comes out in the stream lower down. So that's why the stream down here always flows. But where we're collecting it, mm. it dries up. So what we've so that's kind of started to be a problem because <laughs> we actually we get to a situation where there's no water going into the tank. So my brother rigged up a solar some solar panels that are up in the shed in the garden linked to a little pump that sits beside this storage tank where there is water in the stream still because it's coming through that gravel bed the lower stream lower down and just pumps it and tops up that that storage tank and that's what we're using right now because we've had this dry spell this summer this has been the most extensive i've never had had an issue of water in September. Usually it's been May and June. Thank God for the rain yesterday. Well, but I don't know if it's, have you checked it yet? No. It's going to rain a bit on Thursday. I suspect it isn't, it isn't. Wasn't much though. It hasn't filtered through. It's got, the, the. it's basically a sponge up there. It's a huge blanket bog that absorbs the water and then it just slowly eases out. But because it's dried so much, that, that bog is just, is dry. So it's going to take a lot of water to, to rehydrate it, right? Mm. So at the moment, I mean, we're, we're having a sort of ongoing discussion because this is kind of the first time it's been as bad as that, is, you know, well, what do we do in the future if this is going to keep happening? We need to... Well, it's essential. It it's know? essential, yeah. Access yeah. to water is essential. Yeah. But the, the interesting thing is this simple solar pump, which is only small, and it just comes on every hour or two and runs for 15 minutes, puts water back in the tank it's certainly while it's just two or three of us in the house it's sufficient it's, Keeps, enough. it's enough but we're going to be having more people next week so it's interesting to see whether it'll manage but maybe we'll have enough rain mm. so it's just a so it's a, it's an ongoing discussion and something we do need to be aware aware of up at the village they have rain they do rainwater that's how they and but they have all of those buildings they collect the rainwater from. So they have a huge area and they have huge collecting tanks. I mean, it's at like 10, maybe not 10. But in the village, 10. do they then um, put chloride in? No, but they have a very refined filtering system with with multiple fine filters. Remember, they're not dealing with sediment. Our problem is that because it comes from the hill, you get a lot of fine peat sediment, which if you put a filter, a, a, a physical filter, it immediately it blocks, blocks it up straight away. And I've spoken to water um, treatment experts in this area, and they just say, yep, it's a real problem if that's how you're getting your water, because you're always going to have that fine, that fine uh, sediment. And you can't, you know, you, these micro filters, you'd, you'd be changing it every few hours, you know. Got some peat. 
yeah. oozing into you. Well, I think day, it's, as I say, I mean, we've been drinking this stuff, you know, all my life and it's fine. Um, I think the UV filter is sensible because I think sometimes people come who don't, haven't had built up a robust, <laughs> you know, flora, flora to deal with it all. But um, Well, the, you know. the, the danger is the sheep, I guess, the sheep. Well, there is, yes. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you, you could say there's all sorts of potential risks, but we haven't had serious any serious illnesses so far. But I t it doesn't mean to say we can't improve it. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to be complacent, but it is, uh, you know, personally, I'm not worried about it. But I do, you know, if somebody comes with a small baby or somebody older who's got, you know, immune issues, whatever, I, I, it worries me then, you know, so you think, okay, we need to do something better.